Good morning. I want to extend a warm, warm welcome from the Watertown campus, um, where I usually hang out on Sunday mornings, um, to all of you here in this room, those who are watching online, at all the different campuses, and even to those of you who are watching from the beach at Camp of the Woods, we'll greet you too. Um, well, my name's Jolinda Johnson, and I have the joy of serving as a student <laughs> ministry director and also um, with the FIRE community here at Grace Chapel. And this is an especially powerful moment for me um, because I grew up at this church. So I remember second service, the back row in the balcony with my friends, um, running around the halls of VBS uh, here at this church. And I grew up listening to preaching from this platform. And so it's a, a profound moment for me because this church has deeply shaped me as a person and it's an honor to stand before so many of you who are familiar faces and who have invested my life in various ways over the years. Um, it's such an honor to stand before you to share this word. So I'm really excited that we get to jump into week two of our series um, called Meaningless, and we are exploring the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has always been actually one of my favorite books of the Bible for the way that it forces me to stop and to reflect. So I'm more naturally a go, go, go kind of person. I like to do, get things done, check things off my checklist. Um, I love to keep things moving, and I often have this like tunnel vision, and I can only focus on the thing right in front of me. Um, I often struggle with self-reflection, uh, with thinking beyond like what's right in front of me and making sense of life and the things that I'm doing. And so I really appreciate the corrective from the book of Ecclesiastes that forces me to stop and to think, and even to ask myself some hard questions. And so as we're on the precipice of another academic year, um, or as we're kind of finishing up our summer, I'm excited and expectant for the ways that this book of Ecclesiastes will shape us as a church, a whole church. I'm excited for the way that it will give us time and space to consider really deeply the things that we spend so much time and energy chasing. Things like good work, good food, good drink, a good name, a good reputation. We spend a lot of our time chasing these things, and so I'm excited for the way that the book forces us to think deeply about these things. And so though this journey of asking questions, hard questions, can be quite scary and unsettling, it's my firm belief that this exploration um, will be rich for us as a congregation because of the ways that it will point us to the depths of our need for God. So with that hope and that expectation, join me in prayer before we dive into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you bring us into community, that you have not called us to journey this life uh, alone. You've called us to be in community with one another. And on any given Sunday, uh, we come in with any range of emotions, God, but we thank you that you um, always point us towards your word, that you are a God who speaks, that speaks in the moment through the scriptures, through those around us, um, and that you long to speak to us and to be present with us, to share in the joys that we are excited about or the lows that we are lamenting, God. We thank you that you are present with us in all those things. 
We also thank you that you are the kind of God that can make meaning out of the things that feel um, like drudgery, that you free us from our bondage and that you open up the words to us to help us know a way forward. So I just pray that in these moments, your spirit would be present more than anything we just need to encounter you, your spirit, at work in our hearts and in our lives to help us to know how to live life in this moment. And so we give this time to you in the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. So last week, we learned that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. So wisdom literature is the genre of scripture that helps us to take a step back and to learn how to live life to God's fullest design. So we discovered that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. We also discovered that it falls under the category of pessimist literature. And many of us have negative associations with that word pessimist. But like a good cynical friend, and I know we all have them, this book helps us to think beyond the paradigms that we settle into. The teacher in this book loves questions. For someone like me, some questions, they irritate me. But the, the teacher in this book loves questions, and he's not satisfied with our trite Jesus answers. He forces us to really dig deep he forces us to reflect deeply on who God is, who Jesus is, um, and to learn uh, more about how to live this life. So last week we learned that the overarching preposition of the book is this, that if life under the sun is all there is, it will never be enough. And this is really a guiding framework for us as we journey through the different themes that are presented through the book. So today we're going to be exploring the theme of pleasure in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be considering both the trap and the promise of pleasure in our lives. And so I, as I was preparing this and finishing up the final touches, things were blowing up in my social media feed regarding Charlottesville, and it just touches on this persistent issue that keeps coming up in our lives and in the lives of our nation. And feels really weird to want to stand up here and talk about pleasure in a moment like this. But I actually think that as we dig deeper into the things that God reveals to us through this book of Ecclesiastes, we'll come away with some nuggets that really do help us engage meaningfully with our present moment. But I also want to address those of you who, when I say pleasure, rec like have alarm bells going off in your head. Um, Maybe you're thinking, like, who's this girl? And are we going to be talking about what I think we're going to be talking about? Because she keeps saying pleasure, and it's really awkward. And um, are we having, like, the talk this morning? <laughs> Anyone? All right. Yeah, the laughter tells me. So you can rest assured. Breathe easy. We are not having the talk this morning. I will leave that to Pastor Ryan. Um, <laughs> so we're not talking about that explicitly. But we are talking about pleasure in broad terms. And, um, and when we talk about pleasure today, I encourage you to sub in any of the synonyms that you think of. Words like fun, enjoyment, gratification, satisfaction, comfort, joy, gladness, delight. Take your pick. Think of your hobbies. Think of the things you do for fun or the things you go to for fun, like hiking or chocolate or good drink or steak 
or deep conversations or an afternoon alone. Um, think of your favorite movie or going to an amusement park. When we talk about pleasure, we talk about all of these things. And as we talk about pleasure today, I would invite you to ask yourself this question. What do I do when I get sad or when I get stressed? What do I turn to? That's a good indicator of the things you go to for pleasure, for fun. So I'll be honest. For me, it's retail therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely not online. All you online shoppers, I don't understand you. Um, I, when I'm angsty and working through something, I gotta go like try to get through the store, hit the clearance rack. Like that is my therapy. But I, I really do encourage us all to think about ourselves. What are the things that we turn to when we're sad, when we're stressed? Those are important indicators for us. And I. I find it quite fascinating that when we ask this question, like, what do you do when you're sad or you're stressed? Uh, I find it remarkable that everyone has a different answer. Everyone has a different sense of what's fun, what's enjoyable, what's comforting, what's satisfying. Each person has a different answer for what is fun to them. And um, so this I've learned pretty, in a pretty real way recently in my life. So uh, I'm pretty newly married. Actually, today's our one-year anniversary. We made it. <laughs> made it. Um, and so I've discovered this in a real way because uh, this past March, we went on our very first vacation. And uh, when you talk about the different ways that people like do vacation, relax, um, you, I've discovered this. So me, I'm an extrovert. Okay, so when I'm on vacation, I want to do all the things, see all the people, shop at all the places. I want to go, go, go. Kyle is my dear husband, and he's not boring, I promise, but he loves to read. He loves to sit and have like meditative, thoughtful, contemplative time. Um, and so this is, bit, this is interesting for vacation. <laughs> um, it is, it's quite. So, so in March, uh, <laughs> We, lots of research, lots of angsty researching. We booked this group on deal to Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Um, and, you know, it was a group on deal and it was Booth Bay in March because, you know, first year married budget. Can I get an amen? Yep. And so we, we booked this bed and breakfast in Booth Bay Harbor. And as we're heading up to Maine, I'm praying, Lord, please. Please let the weather be sunny. Let it be more like, you know, March in not New England. Um, <laughs> may the sun come out so we can see everything and buy all the things and see all the people. And I'm pretty sure, I'm making this up, I'm making this up, but I'm pretty sure Kyle is like driving and thinking, Lord, please make it blizzard. <laughs> A big March blizzard so that we can sit and relax and talk by the fireplace. Everyone has a different answer for what is fun to them. Though Kyle and I always agree on yelping, good places to eat, always. <laughs> so there's as many different definitions of pleasure as there are people in this room, and then some. But what we all can relate to is the quest, the quest for pleasure. 
This quest for pleasure, it's in the air we breathe. It's in the advertisements we absorb. It's in the grocery stores that we frequent. It's even in the things that we fight about and the things that we fight for. Everyone in our country seems to be on a quest for more fun, more relaxation, more enjoyment, more pleasure, more comfort, sometimes at the cost of others. In fact, this quest is embedded in the second sentence of our Declaration of Independence. It's what we split from England for. This quest um, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of... Mm-hmm, is in our American fabric. And I would argue that lurking behind some of these tense moments that we're experiencing is this question. Will the pleasures and the comforts that I desire and that I want continue to be available to me? And so as varied as our tastes for happiness might be, the truth is that the human quest for pleasure is actually not at all a new one. So this morning, I want you to walk with me through the experience of an ancient teacher, a teacher who's a character in the book of Ecclesiastes, who, interestingly enough, also seems to be on a quest for pleasure. So as we go, you'll notice these two things about this teacher's quest for pleasure. The first thing you'll notice is this. Like for many of us, The teacher's quest for pleasure is a response to pain and to disillusionment. The teacher's quest for pleasure is a response to pain and to disillusionment. Read with me from Ecclesiastes 1. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. We get a bit of context here. Before the teacher even launches into this quest for pleasure, he begins where all reasonable people start. He begins with a good, earnest attempt at study and at exploration. He's trying to find wisdom. In chapter one, we learn that the teacher is a well-resourced man who applies all that resource to this quest to know more and presumably to apply that wisdom to the way that he rules. In Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 13, he says, I, the teacher, was king over Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. But the teacher discovered what many of us have experienced, that with more knowledge and more wisdom often come more pain and more grief. The pain and the grief comes as we discover the hard realities of life. For example, when we grow up and our eyes are open to the fact that like our parents that we idolized, they're mere humans. Or when we finally get that job, the house, the relationship, or we get to that life phase that we always dreamed about and we discover all its downsides. Sometimes our increased knowledge and wisdom, it begets disillusionment. So heartbroken, we decide to try a new angle. Maybe when you turn on the news this year, some of the things you've heard or experienced have brought you to a place of disillusionment, and you've drowned that out with pleasure. This happens also with the teacher in Ecclesiastes. 
He explains it this way. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. This teacher is seeking. He's wanting to find an intelligible way forward in life. And so when wisdom doesn't work, he he switches gears and he turns to the pursuit of pleasure in hopes that this new pastime can help him find a new lease on life. Maybe you can relate to that. So the first thing we observe is that the teacher's quest for pleasure is a, result, is a response to pain and to disillusionment. The second thing we observe is that the teacher's quest for pleasure is of a pretty remarkable magnitude. Look with me at verses four through nine. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So what activities are on your list in your quest for pleasure? Guaranteed that whatever's on your list, this teacher probably has you beat. As we explore this list of things that he does, we observe that most of the five senses and even a wide stretch of interests and hobbies that we have today, things that we do for fun today are represented in the teacher's quest for pleasure. But this teacher who has all the resource and all the access of a king does all these things probably better than we ever could. Actually, commentaries and scholars make it clear that what the teacher was up to was not any ordinary home renovation project. What the teacher was trying to create is an Eden. Not just a place of beauty, but a place of ultimate and perfect peace, joy, pleasure. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes intentionally takes us to this life of pleasure and comfort and opulence that's beyond what most of us could ever attain, beyond most of our imaginations. And there's a reason. Because as we read through this chapter, we inevitably situate ourselves in the narrative. Because like the teacher, many of us are also on a quest for pleasure and for enjoyment. And many of us will do as much as possible, use all our resources, no matter the cost, to secure as much comfort, as much pleasure for ourselves as possible. Having taken on this quest for pleasure, the teacher summarizes his experience and his findings like this. In verse two, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. 
a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I don't know about you, but that passage stops me in my tracks. This teacher's quest for pleasure leaves me jaw-dropped. It leaves me salivating with envy. I want what he has. But when it's all said and done, all the teacher can say about his quest for pleasure is that it was meaningless. So let's take a minute to explore that word, meaningless. Last week, Pastor Brian showed us this really poignant image to describe the word hevel. Um, it's, and that word hevel is often translated meaningless. And, and this video does a great job capturing what the word is trying to evoke. Oh, another one of my favorite ways to understand the word hevel is supplied by the Bible Project. And it's the idea of enigma. Enigma. So an enigma is a person or a thing that is mysterious or that is hard to explain. Life is definitely an enigma sometimes. And so is our quest for pleasure. Because sometimes the harder you look for it, the harder you look for fun and comfort, the harder it is to find. This is an enigma. The teacher seems to find this also to be the case in his own experience. Because when all is said and done, the teacher stands back and considers it all, and he calls it all meaningless toil. Meaningless toil. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wait, like I thought we were talking about fun and pleasure and party and Food, like when did we start talking about like labor and toil? Like these two things seem to be in contrast to each other. Where did all this labor and toil talk come from? But in verses 10 through 11, where the teacher summarizes his great pleasure quest, the word toil is used three times. And interestingly, if you look back in the Old Testament, there are many different kinds of words that are used to describe work. But here's what's interesting. If you go back and look at what God does in Genesis 1 to make creation come alive, what God does is called work. But the implications of that word in Genesis 1 is of creative work, of creative work. So God is certainly working, but it is a creative work. It is a creative life-making work that is in, in accordance with God's nature and God's purposes, and it's part of God's beautiful plan for the universe. And interestingly enough, the result of this creative work is Eden. But interestingly, in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve break trust with God and use their God-given creativity and energy to make themselves to do what they want, to make themselves temporarily happy. They too are set to work, but this time it's a different kind of work. Their work, which has the implication of pain, is called toil. So stepping back to consider it all, here's what we discover. When we try to build pleasure for ourselves from our own hands, it all ends in toil. When we try to build a pleasure for ourselves from our own hands, it all ends in toil. And this is the great enigma of the quest for pleasure. 
So I was in the midst of the vacation that I told you about a little bit before when I first heard the Katy Perry Chain to the Rhythm song. And I'll tell you, that song also stopped me in my tracks. The words are haunting. The second verse asks, are you lonely up there in utopia where nothing will ever be enough? Happily numb. That verse, that spoke to me of the efforts that I make week in and week out to make sure that I have the right foods, the right environment, the right throws and the right pillows and the right clothes and the right photos and wine and fun to ensure that my world is as close as I can make it to utopia. But when I'm honest in those quiet moments at the end of the day, most of it feels not good enough. And when I'm honest, I find that I fight so much for my own pleasure that I push others aside. I push, cast away their perspectives, their needs, their wants. And it all leaves me feeling pretty numb. So the whole Katy Perry song is fashioned as a party tune. And it's fun, it's catchy, but as you sing it, you realize it is dripping with this awareness of the enigmatic tension of our quest for pleasure. The music video actually does an even better job capturing the enigma, the tension in this quest for pleasure. Um, a BBC music reporter named Mark Savage provided this wonderfully helpful analysis of the video. So he talks about how the video shows people dressed in 1950s brightly colored attire. The people are making their way into this theme park called Oblivia. And they're making their way in with their selfies and their candy in tow. And the centerpiece of the park, and you see hints of it, but the centerpiece of the park is a ride called the greatest ride in the universe. Yes. We don't see the ride at this point in the video, but we see the hamster face. That is its mascot. And we've seen hamsters in the past couple slides also. And then we see all the people lined up happily, jubilantly, in a long, long line. And they're waiting for their turn for the ride. And finally, midway through the video, you have this big reveal, and you see that the greatest ride on earth is a hamster wheel. <laughs> Ooh, ouch. This hamster wheel, it's a symbol for the repetitive laborious tasks that we undertake to create the sense of pleasure for ourselves. And as this goes on the screen, the chorus rings, we think we're free. Drink, this one's on me. We're all chained to the rhythm, to the rhythm, to the rhythm. And much like the teacher, Katy Perry, who is this pop sensation who has been the music behind many of our grand exploits towards comfort and pleasure, names this age-old reality. That too often, our attempts at creating pleasure for ourselves end in toil, in work, in a feeling of being chained to a rhythm that we keep going back to in response to our pain, back to in response to our disillusionment, in hopes that somehow we'll finally attain this level of pleasure that will be enough 
to give us the meaning that we crave out of life. Why is it that our best attempts at pleasure often feel like they end in toil? Why is it? Maybe it's because we forget that genuine pleasure is found not in doing things to make ourselves happy, but in becoming the people that God has made us to be. I'm gonna say that one more time. Genuine pleasure is found not in doing things to make ourselves happy, but in becoming the people that God has made us to be. When we zoom out and when we look over the grand story of scripture, it becomes clear that pleasure was never meant to be merely about the work of our hands for our own satisfaction. That, that was idolatry. That led to selfishness, to bickering, to fighting, to self-protection and belittling the other. Throughout the narrative of scripture, pleasure is never an end in and of itself. It is always an overflow, always a side effect of connection to God. In 2 Samuel 6, pleasure is the word that's used to describe the overwhelming joy that David feels as he brings the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of the presence of God into his city. Pleasure is the word that's used to describe his overwhelming joy in that moment. David is so excited that he sets aside his kingly clothing, he gets down to his undergarments, and he dances in the street with all his might. This story of David in 2 Samuel speaks to the fact that genuine pleasure, it was never meant to be something that could be satisfied with cheap thrills or by insisting on our own way. Genuine pleasure was always, always, always meant to be found through deep covenant connection to God. And it was always meant to be found through celebrating the nearness of his presence. So when we consider the fun of David, who leaves it all on the line in the streets to celebrate the only thing worth celebrating, which is the presence of God in our human affairs, no wonder it is no wonder that the teacher is coming up short. And it's no wonder that we do too. But at the end of the chapter, the teacher shares this realization that provides some clarity onto, into this quest for pleasure. So jump with me to the end of the chapter to Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25. Here the teacher says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and to drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Until this point, the teacher had sought pleasure from the works of his own hands, from the homes, the help, the herd, the women, the Eden-like experience that he was trying to fashion through his own hands, through his own efforts. And at the end of all this, the teacher realizes that all these things don't provide satisfaction when they're done outside of the blessing of the hand of God. And later on in the book, the teacher is even more explicit about how we are to find pleasure in life. In Ecclesiastes 9, 7, he says, go, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. 
Now that word approved uh, can also be translated as accepted or as pleased with, but it's kind of a scary word. Um, It makes us feel as though God is looking down from heaven and is like looking down to give us a grade. You're approved and you're not. But really, the idea of approved speaks to chosenness. It speaks to chosenness. It speaks about the way that God sets people apart to to achieve big purposes in God's great plan to make right what's broken in this world. And actually, Isaiah uses that same word, approve, in Isaiah 42 to talk about the servant, Jesus, who would carry God's spirit to bring justice to the nations, chosenness. What the teacher discovers is this, that we can only find genuine satisfaction and pleasure when the things we do for fun, for pleasure, for leisure, shape us more into the people that God has intended for us to become. Put another way, genuine pleasure is found not in doing things to make ourselves happy, but in becoming the people that God made us to be. The things that we enjoy for pleasure are best and most satisfying when they transform us, when they make us into the version of ourselves that God intended us to be. And they're best when they transform us more into people who are able to serve God's beautiful, redemptive purposes in the world. And it might not look like it, but God is working good and redemptive purposes in the world. But now more than ever, God is inviting us to be the kinds of people that can use our recreation, our work, so that we can become people that reflect him in this world that desperately needs hope to be people who can find creative solutions to the problems that face us. The trap of pleasure is this. It's, that, it's thinking that pleasure is just about the things that we can do in our own strength. Just about the things we do in our own strength just to make us happy. That is the trap of pleasure. The trap of pleasure comes when it's cheap, when Pleasure is cheap when we rely desperately on imitators and when we settle for an instant hit of pleasure instead of a soul-shaping, all-consuming paradigm for pleasure. The trap is thinking that a package of Tate cookies, as yummy as they are, could come anywhere close to achieving the genuine pleasure that comes from the hand of God and in relationship with Jesus. So, but I want to be clear. Please know what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the trap of pleasure is pleasure itself. I'm not saying that the trap of pleasure is pleasure itself. Many of us, either through workaholism or through negative self-talk or through pharisaical perfectionism, we make pleasure and fun and enjoyment into an enemy. I know this to be the case in my own walk with God. But God absolutely made us for pleasure and for fun, for enjoying the senses that he has given to us and the beautiful world that he's created because those times of fun help us to discover more fully who we are meant to be. And to opt out of that experience is to miss out on all that God has created for us. But there are others of us who have become trapped, addicted, 
to forms of pleasure that are really just cheap imitations. They're cheap imitations of the lavish kind of pleasure that God intends for us. And they're imitations that, if we're honest, leave us tired, chained, toiling, and ultimately dead inside. So the trap of pleasure is thinking that we could ever do good enough, enough on our own, uh, on the work of our own two hands to make ourselves happy. That is the trap of pleasure. But here's the promise. Genuine pleasure in all the fullness that God intended will make you come alive. And it will bring healing to the world around you. I experienced this firsthand um, this past weekend. I had the opportunity to participate in the grand opening of a film called Step. Um, I'll give a little shout out for it. It's a great film. I highly recommend it. The film tells this beautiful, beautiful story of a girls' dance group from an all-girls school in the inner city of Baltimore. And there are some pretty poignant scenes um, as they go visit uh, places where uh, people, black men were killed. And it's this story of, uh, of how these women contend with their hard situations and how they find a way out. One of the women in the field named Blessin struggles. She struggles to keep her grades up. She knows her grades are the only way out of her life, but she struggles with the lack of resources, even sometimes not having food in the fridge. And she struggles to stay motivated to hit the goals she knows she wants. But there's this beautiful scene where Blessin explains that when she's creating music through her step, she discovers a creative, powerful, capable version of herself. She discovers this version of herself that inspires her in the times when she's tempted to give up. I'll be honest, I cried my way through this movie. It's, it's a beautiful film. I was taken by the resilience and the beauty of the women portrayed, but I also cried because the film stirred something in me. It inspired me to be a stronger, more resilient version of myself. It even inspired parts of this sermon. So in hard days like ours, may we be the people that take in art and beauty that helps us dig down deeper into who we are meant to be. Because that beauty and that potential of good art and pleasure, it moves something in us. It makes us into more who we are meant to be. So kind of back to this idea that everyone has their own form of pleasure, their own thing that they enjoy for fun. I want you to know there's something unique about you and the things that you enjoy, and there's something unique that those things reveal about who God made you to be. And as you consider what those things might be and who God has made you to be, I would invite you to ask yourself. Ask yourself whether the things that you are turning to for pleasure are making you more or less into the person that God is inviting you to be? Are the things that you are turning to for pleasure making you more or less into the person that God is inviting you to become? The kind of genuine pleasure that God invites us to is not cheap, it's not easy, it's not fast, it's not acquired through the exploitation of others. It is pleasure that's good for the world because of the way that it forces us to look 
outward, away from just our self-interest. It forces us to look to the ways and the things that we uniquely have to offer and the ways those things can bless others. Good things, good pleasure inspires us and compels us to be more fully who we are meant to be. Anything less than this is less than all that pleasure can be. Genuine pleasure is found not in doing things to make ourselves happy, but in becoming the people that God made us to be. What a compelling vision for our lives and our leisure. So to close, I want to spend some time in uh, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, the verses there capture so beautifully the abundant life that God intends for us. It's a picture of the life that God wants to give us if we have the will to abandon the small pleasures fashioned from our own hands that we cling onto. If we are willing to let those go in exchange for the genuine, full pleasure that God has for us, pleasure that's good for us and good for the world. So as I read, I would invite you to close your eyes, to let the scriptures wash over you, and to let God speak to you about the kind of Life that he is inviting you into. And this is from the message version. Hey there, all who are thirsty, come to the water. Are you penniless? Come anyway, buy and eat. Come, buy your drinks, buy buy wine and milk. Buy without money, everything's free. Why do you spend your money on junk food? your hard-earned cash on cotton candy. Listen to me. Listen well. Eat only the best. Fill yourself with only the finest. Pay attention. Come close now. Listen carefully to my life-giving, life-nourishing words. I'm making a lasting covenant commitment with you. The same that I made with David. Sure, solid, enduring love. I set him as a witness to the nations. I made him a prince and a leader to the nations. And now I'm doing it to you. You'll summon nations you've never heard of. And nations who've never heard of you will come running to you because of me, your God. Because the holy of Israel has honored you. So you'll go out in joy. You'll be led into a whole and complete life. The mountains and the hills will lead the parade, bursting with songs. All the trees of the forest will join the procession, exuberant with applause. No more thistles, but giant sequoias. No more thorn bushes, but stately pines. Monuments to me, to God, living and lasting evidence of God. Let's pray. God, still our hearts. Help us to recognize the places where we have chained ourselves to cheap pleasures, things that we know don't satisfy. God, free us from the places and the ways that we have chained ourselves to our own work in hopes that that will bring us satisfaction. 
God, thank you that you are a God who invites us into more, that you are a God who knows that we are thirsty and who delights to give us milk, wine, the finest to drink and to eat. God, we confess that we spend way too much time pushing you away, pushing your invitation away, and turning to the things that we can see, forgive us. And I just pray for those moments of pain and disillusionment. Would you protect us in those moments from the scheme of the enemy who would want to chain us back to these lesser things? In those moments, God, would you remind us of your grander invitation? Though it may be costly, though it may be hard, God, give us eyes to see the more that you are inviting us into. And may we be the kind of people transformed by genuine pleasure, people who, through the ways that we enjoy our five senses, are more fully who you have made us to be. Our world desperately needs these kinds of men and women. And so we ask that you would be with us, you have mercy on us, and you would give us eyes to see what you're inviting us into. In the name of Jesus. Amen.